is Footy Time with Daniel Andrews, and once again, I'm joined on the other line by Johnny Raftopoulos. How's it going, Johnny? Yeah, not bad, Dan. Uh, real interesting round. Not the best round, uh, but yeah, there were some good games. Yeah, definitely wasn't the best round, but uh, still plenty to talk about. What caught your eye? couple of things caught my eye, as usual. Uh, but I'm going to go with the player this week, uh, Lockie Whitfield. 20 possessions, really nice goal. Uh, is there a better mix of both skill and running ability in the AFL right now, Dan? You'd be hard to go past Whitfield for that combination, I think. Yeah, and he's had his injury troubles over the journey, but he just seems to have great confidence in what he can do now. And if you give him any sort of space, as Melbourne seems to give him a pretty a bit of a free run at it, you know, on the weekend, he can really cut you up. And he kicked what it turned out to be the match-winning goal, really, in that game. Well, yeah, it was it was a pivotal goal, and it really settled them. Um, but yeah, he's just you know I've always loved the way he's kick he kicks the footy, and yeah, he definitely clocks up a few k's each week as well. So it's yeah, he's a very you know, I've always been a big fan. So is he mostly playing on the wing this year, or is he still sort of mostly cross half back? I think he's definitely pushed up to the wing more, uh, and I reckon he got most of his possessions on the weekend around that part of the ground. But uh, he's definitely good to have down half back, running off and um, spotting up, much like a Daniel Rich, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, I think if you could choose anyone who's going to deliver inside 50, he'd probably be in the top three within the competition at least. So definitely for another sure. great uh, piece of the puzzle for GWS. Maybe they're not quite as far back as we might have thought earlier in the year. Absolutely not. And what was the second thing that caught your eye? Um, well, I don't think I could have a show without baking Collingwood, to be honest. <laughs> and, um, I just wanted to quickly touch on Collingwood and the number of flattering losses they've had this year that sort of make it look like they were closer or in the game a bit more than they were. I didn't watch a whole lot of that game yesterday. Uh, in fact, I probably the parts I watched were probably the parts where St Kilda were better. I watched the first half. It and, was not overly impressive from either team, but... St Kilda were capitalising on Collingwood's mistakes and just doing enough. And yeah, very defensive ball movement patterns in that first half, especially. That's that's right. St Kilda were capitalising on Collingwood mistakes more than anything else, I guess. But um, I've just noticed Collingwood have done this a few times this year. They'll really come home hard in the fourth quarter. A game that sticks out in my mind is, uh, is maybe about a month ago against Geelong. I felt Geelong were toweling them up all game. Were inaccurate themselves, but they were up by about five goals. Then I think Collingwood had one goal to the fourth quarter and ended up just kicking a few bloopies and bringing it to within 10 and ten points. And I just, I, I'm wondering if that is making them seem like they're better than they actually are. Yeah, it's a little bit of a band-aid. I heard some commentary about it on yeah. the weekend. Like, St Kilda was so far up. The game was essentially over and you know, they what, kicked the last four or five goals of the game and it looks a little bit better on paper than it actually was, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So, but those are my no two meaningful things. change from Robert Harvey taking the reins, it seems, over from Buckley. Not yet. They're still chopping and changing the game plan. And, um, yeah, certain players that you want to see perform, like Dugowie, are still just a bit lackluster. Yeah. I think Harvey's just got to stick with something, play the kids and... Give him some kind yeah. of springboard. I'd be very surprised if Harvey ended up getting the job. I know he's been in the running for a lot of jobs over the journey. I don't ever know if he's got that close, but yeah, it would really surprise me if he landed that coveted Collingwood gig. Me too. All right, let's jump into the questions that matter from the weekend's action. So we'll start with Geelong. And uh, it was looking a little bit dicey down at the Cattery against Essendon early in that night game down there. Essendon were winning almost every stat and had a four-goal lead towards the end of the first quarter, but Geelong completely flipped it thereafter. So the question is, how did Geelong turn it around after being so comprehensively outplayed in that first quarter, Johnny? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty amazing. I mean, 
Essendon were winning a lot of those stats in that first quarter and they were, looked like they were well on top. They were playing with a lot of confidence. Geelong looked very um, not sure of themselves, second-guessing a lot of their decision-making. Um, had the blinkers in front of goal. But I think when you've got a player like Jer- Jeremy Cameron who can turn a game on its head, anything like that is possible. He kicked, I think, three of the next four goals after quarter time before coming off with a hammy injury, obviously. Um First quarter, yeah, the Cats just looked slow, reactive, but that that really helps. <laughs> that gives you the spark. Um, Danger was back, I guess. With well, not he's been back for a while, but I think this was his best game of the year. Thirty-seven touches, eleven clearances. Yeah, he was very influential, um, especially getting it away from the clearance yeah. early in that second quarter when they needed something to change. So, yeah, I, I agree. Him and yeah. Cameron were very influential, especially. They were the fire starters, and. Uh, I also thought the Dons were a bit wasteful in the way they entered into the 50 after a while. Like, they didn't really lose their dare or anything, but um, I noticed like Darcy Parrish has had an amazing season, but he one of the weaknesses I think he has is his disposal into the 50 is always a lot of up and under, and it, it doesn't really hurt as much as it could. That's the one flaw in his game. If he can improve that, he'll be an absolute star for years to come, but... Uh, yeah, I just thought that they were a bit wasteful going into their 50. Yeah, I guess you got to do a lot right down into long. And although Essendon started very well, couldn't maintain the rage when DeLong started coming back at them and wasn't much of a contest thereafter, I suppose. All right, so next one. How big of an upset was Gold Coast win over Richmond? So you must have uh, been looking through... Uh, into the future here, Johnny, because <laughs> you kind of picked this, where even when you thought it was going to be at Metricon, it ended up being played at Marvel Stadium. But uh, the Coasters <laughs> still got it done over the Tigers. Yeah, look, it's it's massive, whichever way you look at it. I mean, you know, the Suns have been just, you know, yeah, beyond crap in the last month, really. And um, most probably wouldn't have even given them a chance to win a game at home, let alone in Melbourne against anyone. At the moment, but they pulled this one off, and it's an upset more so based on where the Suns have been than where Richmond's at. I reckon at the moment, um, it's it really that Richmond. You know, that was obviously a, a tough ask, but I think it's it was just the, a case of can Gold Coast actually rise to yeah. the occasion? And they, they, did. And they, did. they had a lot of scoring shots, and their ball movement was working really well. I think they worked out pretty early in the game that. Richmond weren't going to be putting a lot of pressure on them, and that sort of buoyed them, I think. So, uh, yeah, they knew that they were going to be right in the game and great opportunity to get another win, and they managed to get there with a few tense moments in that last quarter. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. But they def- they stood up. Um, I've got one question for you, Dan. Who is the best Gold Coast player right now? I, th- I think you'd still have to say to Miller just for his consistency and his leadership, and he's been doing it for so long now. Uh, yeah, took Miller for me. Yes, yes, slight trick question. I was also going to say took Miller. Um, it's been a while since a-, a single midfielder really put Richmond to the sword, and um, yeah, I thought Took did this really well. Um, I actually think he's close to the best two-way running midfielder in the league. Really, um. 36 disposals, 7 marks, 7 tackles, 6 score involvements. He had 9 clearances. They had Cochin on him at one point and it really didn't work at all. Um, yeah, I just think he's got an amazing two-way running ability. and um, Yeah, he's great to watch. Do play. you reckon he's one of these guys that he would be a bigger name if he played for a Victorian club? Or he's just that type of player that sort of gets the job done, no fuss? I think he probably would be. I think he would be um, more popular if he was at a Melbourne club because, um, yeah, I mean, he he definitely he's an he's an impactful player. Like he definitely um, he's like a play starter and maybe not so much a playmaker, but he definitely starts the link of possessions in the midfield. I think he would be pretty influential for any side. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it was pretty important that Gold Coast were able to get that dominance on the board. They had a lot more scoring shots, as I said, but Ben King managed to finish some of the good work. I think he finished with three goals, including the match winner. So that was really impressive. 
yeah, and Jack Bowers um, continued his good year, providing some good link-ups from half-back. So, yeah, it was good to see some of these performances. Lukosius wasn't bad. Um, yeah, maybe they can build on this. So what are they up to now? I remember in an earlier episode, we said that they should get to eight wins. They must be getting closer to that. They up to, is it five or six they're on now? Uh, let's have a look at that. They are on five wins. Five so wins. still a little way to go to get to that eight, but almost there. Yeah, almost, almost. But uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe they'll give it a shake. Now, just to finish up on this game, this seems to be the never-ending question that everyone's asking. Seems to be a shoe-in for a while there, but will Richmond make the top eight? I've got a lot of competition now. GWS has taken their spot. Uh, still, teams like uh, Freo, even St Kilda's jumped up a bit, although I think they've got a bit of a tricky draw. Uh, and then you've got teams like uh, Carlton and Essendon just a game further back. So they're right in the pack now. They certainly are right in the pack. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see them fall out of the eight. But uh, I'm still going to say yes. I, I think they will make the eight. It's not going to be easy. But uh, there's the nice four-game stretch for them to finish the season where they you'd imagine they'll get it together. Um, I know it's <laughs> we've looked at some of these games previously and thought that these would be bankers as well. But I think at some point they will bind together and get maybe three out of four of those wins. And they should make it. I don't know what, if they'll do much more than that, but I think they will yeah, make it. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So, yeah, I guess a lot of people's confidence with Richmond has been pretty dented and uh, some people are going so far as to say you know defending the premiership's not really going to happen now but uh, yeah it's interesting how things have changed throughout the season with Richmond it's kind of ebbed and flowed and uh, yeah definitely not their best at the moment but it'll be interesting to see whether they can get things together as you're saying there towards the end of the season. Yeah and a lot of people talking about whether the dynasty's over and all those kinds of things, and yeah, it's just funny how quickly things change. <laughs> the end can come quickly, but I guess you never quite know if it's the end or whether they might be able to relaunch next year. So, yeah, only time will tell. Yeah. So, Carlton's actually won two in a row now, so consecutive wins over Adelaide and this weekend over Fremantle. That game was going to be played in WA, but it ended up being moved to the MCG due to COVID restrictions. So the question I have here is, did Carlton's win over Fremantle save David Teague? Yeah, I think it did. I mean, their review has been going for two weeks now and they've got two wins, so that's a perfect <laughs> start. <laughs> but um, like, I, I've definitely baked Carlton a lot on this show lately, so I've got to give them a bit of credit where it's due. Um that was a really good performance. That, that you could see the sort of relentlessness and they, the buy-in attitude was there. That's kind of what we want to see from them week in, week out. Um, some might even dream a bit and think that the, this is more than just Teague's job being saved. Uh, one game out of the eight, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, never I'm know. sure what their draws are <laughs> like, but yeah, so they're on 24 now, right? Six wins, which is only one game behind Fremantle, Richmond. Is there anyone else on 28? I think. Uh, Somewhere ooh, around that. Tw- 28. So we've got Richmond, Frio, St. Kilda. Yeah, yeah. So, yes. yeah, they're in, back in the pack. I don't. I still don't think, you know, Carlton's going to be thinking about finals per se. But, yeah, just some improved performances. Yeah. And it sounded like there was a bit more in the way of defence in uh, that game in particular. Maybe not so much against Adelaide. So their next few games, they've got Geelong in Melbourne. Oh, MCG, rather. Collingwood. MCG, North the week after, um, St Kilda the week after that, Suns the week after that, so they're not Yeah, it's, not, the it's not a tough run on port. paper, so yeah, maybe they can be pushing right to the end. But I would probably agree with you, I don't think that they are probably thinking it mm. at the moment. Uh, and Have to string a yeah. few more wins we'll, together. We'll see. Exactly. So we both saw firsthand at the MCG the work of Tom Green. Surprisingly, he's sort of struggled to uh, nail down a spot in the side for GWS, but I think he definitely showed his value in the game against Melbourne, especially in that last quarter, some real influential touches. 
So this guy is playing midfield at six foot three, 191 centimetres. And yeah, watching this game just made me think, how good could Tom Green actually be? He just seems like almost the prototype midfielder being that tall, that strong, and he's still pretty young. So he could be anything almost. Yeah, 100% agree. I was watching him a lot as well. And um, yeah, he's just, he's the specimen of that strong bodied midfielder, isn't he? I mean, um, just a contested beast. I mean, he's, yeah, strong bodied, clean clean hands at the contest. Uh, uh, reminds me a lot of, um, a lot of Josh Kennedy at the Swans. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, just the, so, the way he sort of, he's like an extractor specialist kind of guy. Maybe a Paddy Cripps, but I, I, I don't know. Josh Kennedy sort of strikes me a bit more. Um, he was the most pure inside midfielder of that 2019 draft, from what uh, Cal Toomey and the other experts were they saying got him at the time. The academy uh, selection, didn't they? I believe yeah. they did. Yes, I think. Yeah, they did something to get that. Yeah. To get that yeah. pick, to get that. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure it was academy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I totally agree. This it's almost like the sky's the limit uh, in. He's got, he's got something else. This is a bit silly, but he's kind of got that look about him as well, like it, the, that look where if you were on a footy field, you wouldn't want to look him in the eye. <laughs> like, he, he, like if if um if Seaball Getball had a certain look on someone's face, it would be Tom Green's. Like, um, yeah, just a, just a pure natural footballer, like a footballer's footballer. Yeah, absolutely. I think there'd be a lot of other clubs around the league lining up for Tom Green's services if he was on the open market. I think GWS has locked him away for a little while at least. But, yeah, he's obviously uh, still very young but already displaying his wares for all to see and uh, definitely an important piece of that GWS midfield that has really come good over the last sort of six to eight weeks and uh, making it very hard to play against GWS, at least in that part of the ground. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, he's just going to be one of those guys that's going to be very fun to watch, much like you know Andrew Brayshaw and some of the other good young midfielders of the comp. And yeah, uh, looking forward to it. So another trend I've been noticing over the last few weeks is lower scoring. So I went back and had a little bit of a look at this. So from round 12 onwards, there's been fewer teams turning up, less 100-point scores. Uh, there was a few on the weekend with a few of the games that blew out. For example, uh, Brisbane's big win over Adelaide kicked a lot of goals in the last quarter. But, yeah, definitely less uh, large scores being put on the board, I guess, since the sort of start of the buy rounds. And, yeah, just thought it might be a bit interesting to try and pick apart why some of these low scores might be occurring. Any ideas, Johnny? Yeah, it's it's a t- real tough one. I mean, I was thinking the same thing with a lot of the games over the weekend. I was thinking, geez, it seems like these goals are real hard to come by and they're just not really flowing. Um, we've got the stand rule in there that's meant to sort of um, open the game up a bit more. What's happening? I had the exact same thoughts. But um, it's not an easy one to find an answer to. The, the one thing I can think about maybe pointing to is... At this point of the season, a lot of teams might be playing a bit more cautious and not wanting to give too much away, um, keeping it tight, just uh, defend first, score second mm, mentality yep. maybe. Uh, yeah. Uh, but there's not a lot. Yeah. It's not an obvious yeah, reason. Yeah, I guess one thing could be, you know, there was that big adjustment to trying to guard the dangerous space with the stand rule coming in and, you know, We've gone away from that really open style. It's still somewhat open in some games, but, you know, I guess teams went to school on how to actually close down that space. And now teams are so uh, well drilled at actually closing down the space through the midfield if they get half a chance. So that could be part of it. And uh, I guess the other thing is that now that for the last few years at least, a lot of teams' score is coming from turnover. I think teams are getting better and better at actually defending the turnover or even uh, minimising the chance that they're actually going to be turning it over in a 
dangerous spot by the way they're actually, you know, attacking or what they're doing with the ball. So you probably heard this term, Johnny. Uh, you know, it's almost like defending while you've got the ball some of the time. Yeah. Yeah, just um just structuring and um preparing for the turnover almost. Yeah, so I'm not sure that that's, you know, serving the game too well. Obviously, it's good for the teams that can guard against the turnover because you're not getting scored on a lot. But if, if you've got two teams playing against each other and they're both guarding against the turnover, then it's pretty easy to have long stretches of games where not a lot's happening. And that's kind of what was happening in part in that Collingwood St Kilda game that we referenced earlier, where both teams were finding it pretty difficult to get any sort of meaningful attacking play going a lot of the time, at least in that first half when I was paying attention there. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it just sort of seems like um, maybe teams are a little bit less willing to take the risk and, uh, you know, open up the opportunity to score, uh, you know, because by doing that, they're opening themselves up in the other way. Yeah, it's sort of like a a nil all scoreline in a soccer game. <laughs> it's um just neither team is it wants to dare to concede. Really, yeah. And I guess one of the other things I've noticed is uh, some teams are really good at getting you know a lot of players back inside their defensive fifty, especially in that sort of dangerous space, sort of between like fifteen and thirty five meters out. Uh, sort of, you know relatively straight in line there so they're guarding the dangerous space there so it does make it very difficult which made me think of another question do you think the AFL would ever limit the number of players allowed inside 50 I'm not saying it would only be six but yeah I don't know it's an interesting one that's a really good one I can see it happening some kind of cap on um plays in the 50 a little bit like basketball i think having um well i think i think in basketball it's not uh having too many in the key it's having a, a time limit in the key i think um if you're on offense i might have gotten that completely wrong but um yeah i, I can definitely see something like that happen if it you know if they can do a 666 type thing then yeah maybe limit numbers inside the 50 at any one time yeah, yeah. i don't necessarily think it has to be that extreme like it could even be something around 10. But, like, as a defending yeah. team, do you really yeah. need more than 10 of your players inside 50? And, like, I haven't, well, I haven't really yeah, counted it not. up of, like, how, how many players are generally in there when it gets really congested. But, I don't know, it does seem like it's uh, stifling the game a little bit just by having this, you know, basically free reign of how many players you can get back. There's definitely a number of times when you see teams pushing about, you know, 12, 13 into that 50 and you, they might have like, yeah, two up top or whatever, sort of around the middle of the ground. I, I think it happens quite a lot, but um, I can definitely see something like that. It wouldn't be a, like I said, it wouldn't be a drastic cap, but yeah, I, you can still flood players back if you were only allowed yeah. about 10. Like that's still more than I the think somewhere six. between eight and ten. It would be interesting to see what that actually looked like and what that did to the game. But yeah, I guess that's probably one of the biggest things stopping scoring, at least from what I've seen, is if you are able to get enough players back and guard that dangerous space, even if you're winning the ball out the ground, you know the other te- yeah, the team's still able to put enough pressure on to prevent getting like a perfect kick in. So. It can be really hard to score if you if you have the other team getting enough players back into that dangerous space. Yeah, it just becomes a numbers game, and we've been through a lot of phases of the game where this has happened, and it's you know uh, some people might like it, but I think most agree it's not the most attractive form of the game. <laughs> Probably not. Well, <laughs> uh, we're still getting the odd higher scoring game, and like it's not like scoring is completely dropped off, but. Uh, yeah, I guess it's definitely down from probably the first half of the season, I would say. Oh, I, I think for sure. And, yeah, looking at these scores over the weekend, yeah, there's some reasonable ones. Uh, but I think the majority of them were those sort of tight, low-scoring ones that was um, where, where it was hard to break yeah, away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I also think inaccuracies played a big part. <laughs> that doesn't help either. Se- seems to be a lot of inaccurate games. For sure. Cost Frio and Melbourne on the weekend. So Definitely. That leads us to our next topic. So we're going to take a little bit of a dive into what's going on with Melbourne. So they've now slipped from the top of the ladder. Bulldogs have taken over them on percentage after Melbourne went down to GWS at the MCG on the weekend. So we've got a few questions to work through here. And they're all under the frame of where is Melbourne at? So they started really strongly with that 9-0 start. Uh, since then, they've still had some good wins, most notably against Brisbane and the Western Bulldogs. But since that time, they're actually 3-3. Three and three. So first question I've got for you, Johnny, is are Melbourne as good as their ladder position suggests sitting second on the ladder? Well, look, just to add to that 3-3 three and three point, um, the score lines that we've had have been... Uh, not too much chop either. I think it was, what was this week was fifty five. Was it against GWS? Something like that. maybe fifty four. No, yeah, fifty five. Week before was sixty eight, and the week before that, uh, well, not the week before, but the um, Queen's birthday game was uh, not great either. I think it was like sixty three. Uh, but we'll get into about the uh, the ability to score. The question you asked um, is Melbourne as good as their ladder position? Suggest is mm-hmm. that, that, yep. that was it, wasn't it? Yes. Um, well, you actually made a really good point. I think it was yesterday or was it the day of the game? Um, and I, th- I think it's perfect. I think you said um, it's never as good or as bad as it seems. And I think that's perfect when it comes to summing up Melbourne at the moment. Um, it wasn't... We weren't the best team ever when we won 9 and zip or whatever. And um, it's not panic stations yeah, right now probably not as bad although as there are some questions to be asked. <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly um i personally think that we have played slightly above our ability for most of the season and maybe got one or two extra wins out of that um i think we've definitely shown we're a good side but i i do think when I look at that position, when I looked at us being on top of the ladder, I did think it was it was slight overs for what we had list-wise and, um, yeah, just ability-wise. I, still, I thought we were good, but I just it wasn't quite sold on us being... I'm still not sold on us being a genuine premiership contender yet, to be honest. Interesting. So I guess with that loss to GWS, they're now right back in the pack, sort of battling to finish in the top four. They're still a game clear of uh, the rest of the teams battling for that top four. But with a tough run to come, uh, there's definitely no guarantees of finishing in that top four. And uh, I guess how Melbourne perform against some of these teams in the run home, got Port Adelaide next week, games against the Bulldogs, Geelong, and a couple of interstate trips as well in there. Uh, It's going to tell a lot. But yeah, I guess we've kind of noticed a trend in the commentary around Melbourne over the last few weeks, the fact that they haven't really been able to score over 70 points, question marks there. And yeah, I guess people are starting to think that maybe the ladder position for most of the year may have just flattered them slightly. But uh, yeah, I guess just the fact that they've performed so well against the best teams and it's, it's really hard to make the judgment right now. Is this you know, the lull that, uh, you know, the team almost needs or, like, it's just part of the season, you can't stay up the whole time or is it more than that? Are there actually some, uh, you know, problems that are going to actually bite Melbourne when they play some of these bigger games in the finals? Yeah, it's more questions than answers, that's for sure. Uh, and, you d- yeah, you wonder if... If it is just that, like, you can't stay up for the whole season and you need to have a few games like this, I guess. Um, because th- they weren't bad in the second half. We both thought that. They were. They lifted the intensity and they definitely produced enough opportunities to kick the winning score. But um, there's a few questions. How easy they are to answer and how easy these issues are to fix, we'll find out. It might not be hard to fix. It could be something that troubles us for yeah. the rest of the season. Listening back to some of the earlier podcasts we've done, 
just some of the known games. I think there's a few things they were doing in those games that they're just not doing now. And uh, one that comes to mind in particular is sort of flicking it around by hand, giving that first option, sort of that sort of surge football, just, you know, take the ground. They just seem to be a little bit uh, more on the back foot, a little bit less willing to give that first option. So I'm not sure whether it's just a little bit of complacency kicking in, um, you know, not as willing to share with the teammates. Um, People have started to accuse Petrarca and Oliver being a little bit more selfish again, which has been one of the knocks on them over the years. And, Mm. you know, yeah, so like to me, that's if if that is correct, that's more of a mentality thing and you should be able to correct that. So that was one thing I noticed. And another thing I noticed that they're not really getting at the moment is those they're not getting any goals out the back, whether that's just the teams they've been playing against, they're guarding against that, or they're just not being able to turn it over as much in dangerous positions and actually uh, capitalise on that. So those are sort of two big strengths that Melbourne had uh, earlier in the year that haven't really been there the last month or so. Yeah, they're not they're not playing with as much dare. Um, not taking the game on as much. Not there's very little run and carry apart from that last quarter when Jaden Hunt sort of decided to take a few risks. Didn't pay off, but I guess he had the right idea. Um, that's exactly right, though. Early in the season, it was very surge mentality. It was like kick and rush, sort of get it up there. Um, there's moments in games like Saturdays where I feel like it would be really nice if they if they don't know who to kick to or if there's nothing up ahead. Just I would like to see them Take just kick it to space. grass yeah. a little bit more. Just back these small forwards who have been so good for us with their pressure to just outrun guys in a contest and at very worst just get a boundary throw and a stoppage or something like that and get a repeat stoppage inside the 50 um it was back to the old days of the ball just pinging out of our 50 on the weekend and we were bombing it in it was just going to giants players and uh yeah it was it was very Mm. predictable yeah and i think they are sort of picking and choosing a little bit with the effort at the moment like that first half to me on the weekend against gws was nowhere near the level. They weren't putting enough pressure on at all. They weren't scrapping for those 50-50 balls. Giants were winning almost all of the contests. So Melbourne were lucky not to be down by more. But again, to me, that's more of a mentality issue rather than an, you know, a problem with the game plan or anything like that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I agree. The game plan is probably not the issue. Um but maybe a couple of tweaks. Uh, we do quite often take a player away from the stoppage to assist down back. Um, and I just wonder if that's hurting us at some of these, these center, not center clearances, but just clearances around the ground, being outnumbered and easy clearances. Yeah, being given I'm not up. sure if you can maybe, afford to do yeah. that against a team with a really strong midfield. Like, looking at GWS, mm. where's the one spot that you think they could probably beat they might beat you it would be the midfield so like why why give them what they want in their area of strength it just makes no sense i don't think it makes sense either and look i know that it's helped us this year to just uh have our guys you know sort of drop a seventh occasionally zone off make it almost encourage them to kick it in there but it is it's look it's a defensive mindset it's it's re- it's a bit reactive, and occasionally it would just be nice if we could just say to our midfielders, all right, you know, four on four in the centre, whatever, you know, six on six or whatever, around the ground, just win the clearance. Yeah. You know, yeah. Just every now and then. I, yeah. I think, I guess we haven't seen it that much because they are using that strategy you're talking about there. I don't think the, the way they're playing defensively is going to completely fall down if they choose not to push back the seventh some of the time, like they can still defend more or less the same way, maybe not to quite the same degree, but they can still defend the corridor. They can still, you know, be guarding the dangerous space in the back line. So I don't think you necessarily need the seventh there all the time, mm. especially when you're going up against a team whose 
really their one wood is the midfield. Yeah, I mean it's a fine tuning act. Yeah, you, you sometimes got to give up a little bit of something to gain yeah. more of another. All right, so he went off on a few tangents there. They were good tangents, but let's get back to some of these questions. <laughs> so, is Melbourne's forward setup holding them back? What do you reckon, Johnny? Um, yeah, look, I think I think you'd have to say that it is. Uh, is it the wrong setup? I don't think so, but. I think it's just become very predictable now. Um, you know, you've got someone like Tom McDonald, who's his strength is his endurance running and his ability to get up the ground and influence the, uh, the contest that way. And we're, I just feel like we're sort of telling him to be a stay-at-home forward. And he can take a good pack mark every now and then, but it's the moments that we look like getting back in the game were when he yeah. got up the ground. It was actually really good. T- good just, mark, yeah. yeah, it didn't impact the scoreboard. Yeah. He was taking a lot of marks between wing and half forward. And I think you're right. He is that sort of connector player, but you're not going to get a huge amount of value out of that unless he's got someone to connect with. (laughs) Yes, yes. And look, I've seen what a few Melbourne fans have been saying on some various forums and things like that. Everyone's split right down the middle on Ben Brown at the moment and whether he would have helped us at all. I'm still undecided on whether he would have helped us in that game, but uh, I do wonder... If with someone like T Mac getting up there and getting those possessions, if it might have opened up the fifty, having a, a leading Ben Brown running into some channels, and yeah, look, it's it's a hard one. There were plenty one, of times but... on the weekend where Melbourne did have like a good opportunity going inside fifty. They'd moved it relatively quickly, and there were one on one opportunities. A lot of the forwards were leading back towards goal, which is actually a really hard mm. kick to hit. Whereas if, if you had oh, yeah. like you know an established board like Brown able to actually come up at the kicker, that is a far easier kick to actually hit. So maybe he would have helped on some of those plays where Melbourne had actually found a bit of space, but you know they were left with trying to pinpoint the absolute perfect pass rather than just doing you know like your dinky twenty or thirty meter kick to yeah. someone who's on the lead. I feel like he could have actually helped us if uh, we were able to kid him up in that way on some of those plays yeah i mean it just changes the dynamic and it's it's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing because um look he's not the best contested marking forward or a guy who could bring the ball to ground he's not i I think he would have given us more in that area than what we had but uh the thing is that if he's playing are we bombing it into the 50 as much as we were in the first place i guess that's the other thing with the forward line like a lot of the small forwards are down on output. We were lauding how mm. well they were locking it inside 50 earlier in the season, regularly contributing to the scoreboard, but Pickett's more or less completely gone missing in the last three weeks. Spargo's output's been a little bit down, especially on the weekend against GWS, and Neil Bullen's probably been a bit down as well. So it's probably a combination of the fact that you know the forward line with the tolls isn't functioning overly well, which makes their job harder, but they're just not finding ways to impact the uh, game at the moment. Look, but yeah, I mean, some of those guys have been okay at times. I mean, I know Spargo kicked an important goal against Essendon. Uh, Nibbler kicked a nice one before halftime against uh, the Giants. But when you look at it as a whole, I don't know what the statistic is for what our small forwards have kicked in the last month or so, but I can't imagine it's very good. And the fact of the matter is if we're challenging for a top two spot, that's got to be better. You know, we need to... They've at least got to get a goal a game extra each, I'd yeah. say. And, like, for example, when Wiedemann was in, he was bringing the ball to ground a little bit more. They weren't, he wasn't marking a lot mm. of them, but there were more opportunities for the small forwards while he was in there. Yeah. So that, There was more getting yeah, to his personally, feet. Yeah. I think it is time to either bring Brown or Wiedemann back in uh, just to try and get that forward line functioning a little bit differently. And I think we've said this already in an earlier podcast, but I think a few of the issues Melbourne is having as well is just inaccuracy, which exacerbates all these problems. We probably wouldn't be talking about it anywhere near as much if Melbourne had kicked, you know, 13-9 instead of 9-13 and they were mm. inaccurate the week before as well. But even with taking that inaccuracy out, there's definitely uh, tweaks needed to the forward line. I think we can both agree on that. Absolutely, and just quickly on that inaccuracy, uh, those five snaps in the last quarter, 
uh, that all five of them pushed across the face. Some scored behind, some didn't make the distance. That just reminded me of a real inexperienced team. I mean, I'm not saying that we are, but and some of those players were a bit inexperienced, but it just seemed like the active players who weren't used to being in that yeah. moment. So it's also experience that gives me a few <laughs> questions about yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. What's that going to be like come finals time? Yeah, the, the snaps, they missed badly. They did seem to rush those shots, I agree, and it does sort of smack of inexperience. They're really coming in that last quarter. I think they had 19 inside 50s, two goals relatively quickly in the quarter, and then really nothing after that. So I think all those mm. snaps came in the second half of the quarter. Uh, so uh, yeah. as Melbourne could have so easily pinched that game. I think I'd set that to you after the sure. game. But yeah. maybe they would have deserved it, maybe they wouldn't have, but... They were coming hard in that last quarter. They, they were actually getting the clearances back on their terms. They were taking the game on, just couldn't finish it off. Yeah, yeah, and we'll see how much damage that does. Hopefully not too much, but big game yeah, against Port. for week. a huge game against Port. See if they can uh, turn up for a first half. It would be nice. Mm-hmm. So next question. Why has Melbourne performed so well against the Premiership contenders, but perhaps not as well against those who aren't in that conversation? What do we reckon? Yeah. um, It's almost like the teams that... it's, It's really strange. It's almost like the teams that don't have as much belief in what they're doing can throw it can catch us by surprise a bit i don't know where it um i don't know if it sounds as what, what it was meant to sound like but um the te- like the team when we've played teams like richmond when we've te- played teams like geelong the bulldogs and that we kind of we know what we're going to get and and they believe they have more belief in their ability i find and we're, we're just yeah we're ready to chop off all their sort of attacks and things like that and um I don't, I don't know what... I, I'm not sure what I'm saying here, but it just seems like we execute it better, I think, when we're up against the wall a bit. But whereas if it's a team like Collingwood or whatever, um, it's... I'm just trying to think of the right words to describe this. Uh, it's more like... We're, we're sort of waiting for them to make mistakes, I guess. And if they do things like run and carry a bit on us and um, just take some, almost like a, we've got nothing to lose attitude, then, um, yeah, it just catches us off guard a bit. I, I don't think I've said that very well at all, but I think there's just a bit more of an unknown when we play a lesser yeah, team. Yeah, so I think I, I think I get what you were saying there in the first part where, you know, team, established teams like Richmond and Geelong, you kind of knew what you were going to get from those and Melbourne could plan yeah. against that. They knew they had to be really on their games and they had a plan to actually disrupt it and get the game on their terms, which they did. But when they're playing at some of these lesser teams, they don't necessarily know what the opposition's actually going to throw at them. And maybe that makes them a little bit more reactive, uh, takes them a little bit longer to actually properly get their heads in the game. And by the time they do that, sometimes it's too late. Is that kind of what you were saying? Yeah, yeah, m- mainly. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, also, those less, I don't feel good saying calling them lesser teams, but you know, on the ladder they are. Um, but there's more of a, an opportunity to bring up in like disruptor type players. I mean, uh, bringing Mumford in was just yeah. I mean, it was it was a no brainer. Really, <laughs> it was just a no brainer. I didn't think Gorn was bad. I actually don't think Gorn maybe just took the points, but I think Mumford did his job in really frustrating and and just not intimidating, but just making it a hard day, making him earn it. Um, but, yeah, then, then I just look at these uh, these sides who they uh, they kind of figure out that, well, we can't just keep bombing it in there. We can't keep um, kicking it to, you know, the, what, I, what I call the, the Melbourne no-fly zone <laughs> back line. Um, <laughs> That you know, they decide. Well, we've got to either you know run and carry, bring them out, sort of shift the line across, and yeah, and they start kicking it to grass and things like that. Um, but but they, it's um, 
it's easier to try those things, I think, when you're a lesser team and you don't have as much to mm. lose, I guess. So one thing that I've sort of been thinking throughout most of the season, and it kind of relates to this, is Melbourne's whole game style when it's working is built on bringing fantastic pressure and a lot of intensity. So it just sort of makes everything work. If you've got that pressure intensity yep. in the midfield, then you can kind of get away with what they're doing by trying to fold numbers back a little bit more. They can either, you know, break even in the midfield or get the ball sort of surging their way. When you're getting to those 50-50 contests from a long kick, you have the chance to actually uh, get, you know, get the handball out and start a chain that way. And you're just making everything a lot harder for the opposition. And that really complements yep. uh, going back the other way. If the opposition has the ball, uh, you know, you, you set up so well guarding the corridor, guarding the defense, they're not able to spot up kicks. But as soon as you start to take away any of those elements in terms of the pressure or intensity, everything just starts to fall down. Because now mm. it's not as hard for the opposition to actually start hitting up some of those kicks. It's not as hard to actually... Uh, play against Melbourne, essentially. So I think that's one yep. of the reasons why Melbourne's struggled to put teams away in the last quarter because they've kind of had the game won and their pressure drops and basically it's the great leveller. Melbourne no longer has all yep. those advantages that I just talked about because to have all those advantages, they kind of have to be pretty close to that 100% in terms of the intensity and the pressure. So perhaps that's part of it. It's harder for Melbourne to generate that awesome intensity and pressure that sort of makes everything just click against some of these lower-ranked teams. And by the time they sort of think that they need to, you know, play in this mould, sometimes they actually started a little bit too late and the game's over. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one thing I always look to is the ability to lock the ball in the forward 50. I think the more time Melbourne has the ball in that forward 50 the more chance they have of winning a game. And if they get repeat stoppages, if the, it's just better. And um, that makes everything work too. It allows us to set the zone up. It allows us to, um, yeah, just just generate more opportunities by having yeah, that pressure. Yeah, I guess pressure. that's kind of related to what I was saying yeah. as well. Like if you do have that intensity, you're actually more likely to turn over in your half of the ground and you get a better chance to score there as well. It's something I guess I've noticed in the last few weeks. We're doing less of that, like, you know, I remember, yes. you know, like Lever and May coming a lot higher up the ground uh, when you're really getting on top and actually turning it over around sort of that 70, 80 meter, 80 meter radius and, uh, you know, giving you those repeat entries that you're sort of talking about there. So. Yes, yes, absolutely. And yeah, if, if it just comes, if that pressure comes off 5%, like I feel like it did on the weekend, I really just, I felt like we really struggled keeping that ball in the 50 and it was, it was pinging out. Yeah, it just, it sort of, it doesn't fall apart, but it it, it takes a big, big um, chink out of yeah. the armour, I guess. And also then there's the the other one would is the, well, I guess it is our one would, the contested ball, I guess, or the, um, the we haven't been great in centre clearances and that, but just our ability to win the hard ball and they were breaking even with us or, and smashing us in those clearances early. And that's another one that just, that falls down. But um. I think Kane Corns actually made a really good point uh, on the Sunday Footy Show. He said, "Look, if they're gonna if they're gonna win it this year, it's it if if anything happens to their backline, <laughs> that's it. Like that is what they're yeah, hanging yeah. their hat on right now." And I totally agree. I think that's the ticket to a a shot at the flag, really. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's really funny how if just one of these things, if one of these dominoes falls, the whole thing just is kaput, really. I guess. Maybe that's the perfect game plan, but I don't know. Maybe not. It works so well when it's all working, but then, yeah, when one thing comes off, then it just sort of doesn't work. I'm not sure whether other, you know, great game plans that other teams have had are so vulnerable, but uh, it does seem that it can go off if that intensity is not there. Yeah, I mean, when the Tigers won their 2017 flag, I actually wasn't sure if they'd get back. I, I, people were saying, oh, yeah, like they'll, they'll be great. They'll, look at that pressure. It's so good. And I just thought, well, you know, that's one of the variables. It's hard to keep yeah. that pressure up for so long. They, I don't know how they did it, but they did. They managed to get back there multiple times and, and win it. But, um, 
Yeah, that's kind of how I feel at the moment though with Melbourne is that it is relying a lot on bringing that pressure every single week. I guess that's one thing that does give me a bit of confidence heading into this last part of the year and into finals, hopefully more than one, <laughs> is that you know <laughs> if you can bring your something somewhere near your best and bring those that big pressure in those big games, then that's kind of where Melbourne has actually proven that they've actually been able to perform really well. So it's almost like they need to, and it's probably not going to happen this season, they need to actually learn how to actually approach those other games if you can't generate the manic intensity that you need, because you probably can't do that every week. So if you can't do that, how are you actually going to set up the game to win? Yeah, absolutely, because you're not going to be able to do that all the time, and you've got to find other ways to win sometimes. Exactly. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode, a relatively Melbourne-centric one, but there's some other stuff to begin with, so hopefully you can forgive us that. <laughs> yeah. Hey, look, Dan, just one question, sure, one sure. more question. What would you rather? Would you rather be Melbourne, who's proven on the big stage against some good teams this year, or would you rather be a Port Adelaide who can beat up on these other teams and have question marks yeah, against them? No question in my mind. I'd so much rather be Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, me so, too. Yeah, it gives us a little bit of heart there as well. Like, There's a few struggles, but they have performed really well against some of the best teams. So, you know, time will tell whether they can repeat that, but they've done it already. So there's really no reason why they can't do it again. Whereas someone like Port, they haven't really done it. So it's harder to yeah. make a case for that, I think. And obviously I'll just put in like the disclaimer that this only means what it means if we win this week. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's it's not all doom and gloom to me if they lose this week, but No, but, it, isn't. Um, it isn't. Yes. Definitely need to be improving the last six weeks in the lead into finals and you know if they're going to finish anywhere in the top four, they've got to win probably another four games. So in that, that tough oh, stretch. So, so. But, uh, you know, if they make it, they're going to deserve it and uh, be some interesting games in the finals, hopefully. Yep, yep, absolutely. Thanks for jumping on the line, Johnny. It's been lots of fun. No worries. Um, yeah, hopefully uh, a different, uh, different tone in our <laughs> next game. But, yeah. No, if you'd clear. like to suggest any non-Melbourne topics, jump on to footytimemail at gmail.com. Although I'm pretty sure there's quite a few Melbourne supporters who listen to this podcast, so maybe we're catering to our demographic. All right, we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening, guys. See you next time.